Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I am joined today by Johanna Mellis. Uh, and Johanna is going to introduce for you um, the episode that we have coming up for you today. So I'm going to toss it to her right now. Hi, Johanna. Hey, Nathan. Hey, everyone. Um, so we have a really um, e- exciting episode in the sense this is something that we've talked about for a long time. And I just kind of wanted to frame it for listeners so that um, it was very clear what our intentions were. And, and the reason why this is a special episode is because we're going to be continuing past conversations that we've had with Kira McCormick, who we had on about a year ago, and, and many other people. Um, and we're really doing this episode in response to some requests that we've gotten from colleagues and friends who are parents um, and, and parents who are thinking about involving their children in sports and kind of what should they know and what should they do to prepare for it. And so we really hope that this interview, along with other ones that we're going to do moving forward, will help equip people with approaches, questions, and and really demands, if if they feel like they need it, that they should be looking at and making of their coaches and their teams, national governing bodies of sports, and, and, and their government governments. And, and as I said, you know, we've been getting requests to kind of, you know, ask for our expertise. And in particular, um, Ryan King White, who is an associate professor of kinesiology at Towson, who is an expert on sports. Um, he actually called me and another friend last summer because he wanted to talk through, you know, what, what should he be thinking about? Um, you know, when he's thinking about putting his kids and kids in more intense sports. And for example, you know, should people even be enrolling their kids? and more intense sport environments to begin with? Um, How do they need to prepare themselves and their children to recognize warning signs of abuse? And and many other questions. And these are all really difficult. And I personally was a little uh, unprepared in the sense that, you know, I know kind of the circumstances and the symptoms and the history, but I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in kind of navigating these organizations and I'm not an expert in in improving these organizations. Um, So that's what we hope with this interview with Kim Shore is going to do. But before we dive in, we want to make it really clear that just because we're giving people kind of guidelines and questions and whatnot, is that we're doing this, but we're also totally rejecting the premise that athlete abuse in any form is an acceptable part of modern sport, because it absolutely isn't. And I think listeners know that we really firmly believe, along with many other people, that it needs to be rooted out. But what's really infuriating and, and really enraging is that many sports people seem to have simply accepted that abuse exists in sport and then we just need to deal with it. And I say that they seem to have accepted it because of the way that the sports media reports on it, the way that many people sort of just uh, pawn it off as a bad apple phenomenon, just like they do when they talk about racism and homophobia and other issues. And this is really born by the horrific pervasiveness of sporting abuse. And we literally have cases in every single sport Um, of all kinds of different abuse and harassment stories from the youth level all over to the professional level, the Olympic Games. And all of these forms of abuse are abetted and really promoted by sport organizations, by universities, even governments, and by promoted, you know, their inaction and their lack of willingness to actually develop policies that are enforceable shows that they're essentially promoting abuse. And, you know, they're refusing to investigate properly to create pathways to reporting abuse, et cetera. And we've seen this with the NCAA and other organizations, some of whom reject any responsibility for protecting athletes at all, which is uh, total BS. 
And so what this means is this really forces parents and children of all ages and genders to really send their kids in sports if they choose to do so with a pretty high probability and possibility that they could be abused. And so parents essentially have to cross their fingers and toes and do a lot of work to ensure that coaches, that other athletes, et cetera, won't abuse their children. And this is just a fundamental um, institutional and governmental failure at numerous levels. And we're going to get into that today. And, and so as I said earlier, we're hoping that this is going to help kind of parents figure how to navigate the, the really dangerous nature of sport. And, and this should be clear, uh, for, again, for, for listeners, is that children should be able to compete in sports without ever having to worry about being abused or harassed. And parents should feel completely comfortable signing their children up without having to be hypervigilant about predators, abusers of any kind. Again, this is not an acceptable form of sport. But as we've talked about with many, many people, um, the, the people who created modern sport and continue to control it today, they decided to control athletes' bodies first and foremost under the guise of acceptable and even laudable behavior. And, you know, we've talked about this with so many people from Georgia Servan's work on women's artistic gymnastics to Brittany Delacreta's expertise on gendered and trans sport athletes to more recently with Courtney Cox's discussion about surveillance and um, technology um, over sport and people's bodies is that people in sport really want to control what it is the athletes are doing. And this, of course, includes the NCAA's continued use of the slur that they created in the 1950s to avoid paying college athletes for injuries that they incur, uh, that they incur on the job. And since sport organizations have decided that their actual purpose is not to protect athletes, but really to protect their image and their liability, um, this means that they use athletes as pawns in their game for control. Um, And so really this discussion is not a sign that we are accepting of the status quo, nor that parents and children should accept the status quo. This is really about equipping people to fight back. Okay, thanks, Johanna. Um, I really don't have much to add to that. Um, I think that the, the next step is to, to go to our interview with Kim Shore. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to point out to folks that uh, we've actually been doing quite a bit of writing recently, and we would love to share it with you. Um, so if you want to check it out on the subject of abuse, uh, Derek and I wrote about the NHL and its sort of determination to forget about what happened in Chicago. Uh, we wrote about that in Hockey in Society. Um, The three of us wrote a piece in the Los Angeles Times uh, about sort of the ongoing exploitative nature of college sport, um, particularly in light of the lucrative new contracts that coaches have been receiving in the world of college football. So we encourage you to check that out. Um, I wrote a piece with uh, Stephen Casper and Jay Smith about the history of the term student athlete, as Johanna was sort of just referencing there and the way it's kind of used as a cudgel to suppress athletes' rights. Uh, That is in the Chronicle of Higher Education. We have another piece uh, in The Guardian on the response of college athletes to the use of the term, the ongoing use by the NCAA of the term student-athlete in the new constitution. Uh, Their justification for that is that that is what the athletes themselves wanted. So we went out and talked to college athletes and got their perspective. uh, And it certainly does not align with what the NCAA had to say. So please check that out as well. Um, And as ever, if you could follow the show on Twitter at End of Sport Pod, uh, if you could subscribe to the show, that would be much appreciated. And any ratings and reviews you might be willing to leave would also be uh, dearly appreciated. Thanks so much. And now to our interview with Kim Shore. 
Kim Shore is a certified corporate leadership coach, a workshop facilitator, as well as a former member of the Gymnastics Canada Board of Directors and chair of the first ever Gym Canada um, Safe Sport Committee, and also was a gymnast for her entire childhood and competed at national and international com competitions. And she ultimately received a full ride scholarship to a Division I NCAA school, a CIAU individual and team national championships, and a seventh place finish at the Sport Aerobic World Championships. Kim, we're really delighted that you could join us. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm super grateful to speak with all of you. I think, honestly, every conversation that we can have about making sport safer takes us a step closer to allowing sport to deliver on its promise. And I think that promise is really to help us be better, stronger, and more joyful people. So I'm really grateful to everyone in the last couple of years, especially who had the courage to shine a light on the uglier side of sport with, of course, the goal of improving it. Absolutely. We, we totally 100% agree. Um, and so before we kind of just get into the discussion about how to recognize different forms of abuse and sort of prepare in the event that it happens, Kim, it'd be really helpful to hear a little bit more about your background in the sport of gymnastics, um, how your child is a gymnast, and how you've come to be an advocate against sporting abuse and institutional failure. And as always, um, only share where you feel comfortable sharing. 17 years in gymnastics. It was a long time. Uh, I truly loved the opportunity and I guess the privilege to participate in sports when I was growing up. And even as an adult, I feel that physical activity is an absolute necessity for, for being a well-rounded person and having a, a healthy life. And I can't imagine what life would be like if we were too afraid to participate in sport because we allowed sport to take on such a degraded form so I'm yeah I'm really passionate about um, improving athlete safety improving um, you know workplace uh, conditions and culture so that our coaches and our sport administrators uh, are enjoying their jobs and and their career path I think that it's there's there's just so many areas that we need to improve sport um, as you mentioned, I, I spent many years in the gym. I actually loved gymnastics so much that I begged my mom to let me move away from home and bill it with other families for four years so that I could pursue it. I guess I wasn't the most talented kid, but I always worked really hard and I tried to be very coachable. It was obvious to me that the kids that were um, compliant and agreeable and tried really hard were also the kids that um, stayed in good favor with their coaches. So I did strive for that. I'll be honest. You know, I never really had big aspirations. I never considered myself to be uh, an Olympic hopeful or anything like that. I just really wanted to learn new skills, please my coaches and hopefully make it to nationals a few times. And so I guess you could say that getting a scholarship to a div one school, and it was the university of Nebraska really exceeded my own expectations. And I, I, I'm happy to say that throughout all my years in club gymnastics, I only had one coach who I felt was truly awful in how she treated us. She left me with some pretty bad memories and an ankle injury that I guess still haunts me today, but it wasn't enough to overshadow my love for the sport. Um, 
what I witnessed at the gyms I trained in over the years led me to think that this was a sport with a with an identity crisis at the very least. You know, it was so much fun to flip and to fly and the mu- movements were so beautiful and an absolute delight to perform. Yet an athlete had to put up with a lot of harsh negativity and scrutiny just to participate, let alone win. And the lucky few who had ultra positive experiences were few and far between. And often I I noticed that they were the most successful. And I think I've seen that even today in Canada's most successful gymnasts. Um, They often are the ones that come from the most positive environments. So I couldn't quite figure out why we had these ultra harsh um, situations going on. Even then, I questioned, why was their name-calling, embarrassing weigh-ins? Why were kids kicked out during practice? Why were coaches yelling? You know, all of these tactics that were used to motivate gymnasts, they didn't make sense to me then, and they absolutely don't make sense to me now through an adult lens. You know, I still think back to the number of talented girls who left the sport due to devastating and, and possibly preventable injuries. They were emotionally burned out. They may have had immense fear of skills, which was exasperated by angry coaches. And I saw pervasive eating disorders, especially in college. So it just felt like such a waste of talent and and love for the sport, not because these young women couldn't handle the sport, but because the culture basically chewed them up and spit them out. My students have been writing a lot about um, the film Athlete A, and they've been writing about the sort of relationship between uh, gymnastics and the kind of win-at-all-costs capitalist imperatives um, of sport more broadly and how we see them playing out in the world of gymnastics. Uh, but what what you're saying highlights something that I think that we we don't often think about, which is the fact that like the justification for so much of this abuse is win at all costs, right? It's the performance imperative. It's that we're going to turn people into machines and extract as much as we can from their bodies performance-wise. And of course, that is inherently abusive. It's dehumanizing to do that, right? But like the, mm-hmm. the it's sort of justified by the end of athletic success and accomplishment. And yet what you're saying, which I think is so essential for us to consider, is that we lose so much performance in these dehumanizing environments because most, maybe not all, but most people, and I would count myself for sure among this number, most people thrive in positive situations. Most people thrive when they're nourished and treated with kindness and generosity and people are trying to bring the best out of them um, and give them the best of the world. You know, I would never have accomplished anything. Uh, I wouldn't be in the positions I am today uh, if I had been, if I had had abusive mentorship, let's say, in graduate school. I got through graduate school because my supervisor, Gamal Abdel Shahid, was a kind, generous, and warm person who nurtured me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I got here. And I'm sure that is true for so many athletes, so many gymnasts. Um, you know, it's just, it's really tragic to think about, even from an athletic standpoint, what is lost. But certainly the human standpoint is obviously most important. So just to kind of follow up on what you're saying, because this is something that, you know, I have a a daughter who's six years old. um, 
And so it's often on my mind, the question of what parents need to think about, what parents need to understand about the sports systems and cultures they have to operate within when they sign their children up to play sports. And of course, you're thinking about gymnastics here, but I'm also thinking about you know practically any sport you can possibly imagine. And, and specifically, since you have worked within Canadian sports structures, I'd also love to hear about sort of a sense of what the Canadian government does with respect to questions of abuse. That is, what laws are in place? What kind of protections are there for kids, young people, adults, anyone in an athletic space? Sure. I just want to go back a bit, though, to that win-it-all mentality you mentioned. And I think that is extremely pervasive in all sports. And the thing that catches me up, though, is thinking about the five- and six-year-olds that you know I've watched through a lifetime of, of being involved in gymnastics, and particularly in the last few years with my own children in gymnastics, that, you know, the the harsh approach, the yelling, the shaming, it's happening even at five, six, seven, eight years old. And I just can't imagine that those coaches are actually thinking of medals when they're executing those kind of coaching tactics. Like the disconnect between winning a gold medal and the way that the kids are treated in the gym at a young age it's too great for me to believe that the coaches are really that motivated by just winning. And I say that because, you know, often in gymnastics, you have a coach for one year. And then if you're, if you've reached the appropriate standard, you go into a different group the next year, a different level, and you actually have a different coach. So you may have a coach for two years in a row, but often it's every year, every couple of years, you, you change coaches. And so I think what I also see is young coaches who are teaching the younger kids under extreme stress and pressure to to just apply the the coaching tactics that are uh, embedded into the culture of the sport. And and I can't speak to other sports because as a lifetime gymnast, I'm basically what I call a mono athlete. I I have really no other athletic skills um, or sport experience, so so my lens is a bit narrow. Um, but you know, I, I that that disconnect for me is is so pervasive or so prevalent because I I feel like the coaches also are are struggling to survive in their environment. You know, most of these young coaches were gymnasts themselves. And so they are reenacting the tactics that were used on them. And I believe fullheartedly that many of them did not go into coaching with that intention. In fact, many of the coaches I spoke to entered back into the sport with the intention of doing it differently. But the peer pressure and the need to conform and the need to be included in the 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 peer relationships of of the gymnastics coaching community is too strong for them to overcome on their own. And you know, Kim, I, I got to follow up on that. It, what you're making me think of is growing up in Canada, right? So, like, I'm, I'm happy to share that kind of Canadian context with you, and not necessarily about gymnastics, but I think this happens all over the world. You get after, let's say, an Olympic cycle maybe the country quote unquote underachieves at the Olympics, right? Or something like that, or at a world championships, perhaps 
And what do we get? We get this sort of like national inquisition, this discourse in the newspapers, wherever else, sort of saying, why? And it happens in Canada with hockey most of all, of course, right? Why have we failed? Why have we failed? What's wrong with the export system, right? We, and, it, and it always comes back to the youth levels, right? This is this idea that we're failing at the youth levels. We don't have the Olympians because we're failing somewhere down the line which means we have to do, you know, revise our whole system in order to extract more performance from our athletes. And that's celebrated, right? In, in the sort of like mainstream discourse, that's celebrated almost as um, an unquestioned good. The point is always more medals, more winning. If you can achieve more medals and more winning, everything's working in the system. But what we don't see, because what is concealed by that discourse, is the fact that the actual brute reality of it, like how the sausage gets made, is literally coaches belittling five-year-old children trying to make them, you know, jump better because their jobs rely upon it because they're getting more pressure to send people up with more skills or whatever else. Um, and, and so the, the cost of that kind of, the cost of those medals, I guess, at the end of the day, is all of this dehumanization. Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and to be fair, there were also many coaches who put themselves in harm's way to protect their athletes from more powerful, abusive coaches and were completely ostracized for bringing progressive athlete-centric thinking to the job. I have a recent uh, comment on a Facebook post I made from a coach who said she has been treated like a pariah uh, because of um, her insistence on treating athletes kindly and, and uh, humanely, I guess. Um, and, and I saw club managers and high-level sports leaders turn a blind eye to abuse allegations in order to maintain their high-performance reputation or funding. I also saw other sport administrators at a complete loss as to how to help their coaches who had still not recovered from a childhood in the sport. So I guess when the blinders came off for me and I saw how much pain and struggle was still commonplace in gymnastics, I really wanted to help. That's why I got re-engaged and I hoped that my corporate experience away from gymnastics had given me some valuable clarity and perspective because I think when you're a gymnast your whole life and then you turn to coaching and then that becomes your your career path, you can't help but be fully entrenched in the mentality or the culture uh, and the practices that go along with that. It's it be, truly becomes all they know, and there's a, a complete normalization of that. And I think that coaches themselves live with a lot of pain that they, in turn, normalize and or stuff down and ignore and just keep putting one foot in front of the other um, because they don't know any differently. They haven't. They haven't had the grace of time uh, years away from the sport to to understand um, and, and see that maybe things could be done differently. That's a, that's a great insight because I, I, what I'm hearing you saying is that we can't leave it just to coaches, right? To be responsible for producing or um, building a more humane system of, you know, uh, athlete development what that requires because the coaches themselves are a product of the system because no human being can be like expected to transcend their socialization mm -hmm. somehow magically, right? right? Just because we ask them to. 
you need mechanisms mm -hmm. that go beyond those individuals that create new structures that allow people to be better versions of themselves, right? Or to change who they are or to keep them in line to, 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 to prioritize and to ensure the safety of athletes. So the question to come back to it then is like within Canada, do those structures exist? No. Full stop. No. Um, and so the mechanisms are not in place to support what we're trying to accomplish here with even this conversation. The funding is not there to support uh, educational initiatives, uh, retraining. There just isn't enough anywhere. So, so I guess what it comes down to in my mind is um, everybody needs to be involved. Um, we need every parent, every sport administrator, and ultimately every coach to be very passionate about creating safe and inclusive sport experiences for everyone, regardless of ability. Um, and, and we all have to collectively agree that we will not tolerate abusive behavior towards anybody, by anybody. And, and acknowledge that by law, we have a special obligation to children in the care of our sport clubs. You know, I think until our legislate uh, lawmakers and um, politicians and, uh, and funding bodies, because in Canada, it's largely, you know, federally funded um, sports at the, at the national level, everybody has to get on board. And and I'm not talking about intolerance as in like a coach yells at a child once and should be banned from the sport for life. That's we're not even close to talking about this, uh, about that. That we're talking about some significant um, abusive practices that that need to be eliminated from sport and some coaches who, as they grow and develop as professionals, are, are mentored and nurtured in a way that allows them to, to step into being a leader with the skills to manage difficult situations with, um, you know, a whole toolkit that they can rely on rather than constantly going back to what I call cheap coaching tactics. And that is the yelling, the shaming, uh, the kicking the kid out because you can't deal with them anymore. Those tactics um, are not only counterproductive to high performance athletics, but they're damaging to the individual who's experiencing it. So no, I don't think we have even close to enough uh, mechanisms in place to support coaches to do a better job. And the, you know, the people that pay the price for those, for that lack of, of funding and lack of mechanisms in place are, of course, the children. It's going to take parents and coaches and so on. It also, um, it's taking the media. Like, I just can't believe how invested the media has become in the last few years um, to really help give voice to athletes and to raise the public consciousness around what's happening inside sport clubs. I look at media outlets like TSN and reporters like Rick Westhead, and I'm so grateful to them for telling the stories that none of us know about and for bringing to light the pain, the real true cost on the, on the human beings involved. 
they're bringing that all to us so that we can hopefully um, increase our empathy and our compassion. And as fans or as parents or onlookers, we can change um, our expectations and change the narrative that we have as fans that any of these athletes owe us um, entertainment. Absolutely. I mean, you just really pieced together, I think, a lot of what we're hoping to talk about today. And just, um, I mean, I, I like that you brought up the example about like the, you know, the coach who yells once and how like we're not even at the, we're not anywhere close to like that being the primary issue. And and I'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of what we do, especially on Twitter, is when we have these, you know, like clips, especially of like football coaches, but we know this happens to every sport where we have these clips of these football coaches just yelling and screaming and just treating their football players terribly. And we share them and we're like, this is unacceptable behavior. Like this is abusive. And inevitably there are people that are like, oh, are you saying that, you know, no coach can ever do X, Y, or Z. And like, they're, they're totally missing the point, right? The whole like yelling mm-hmm. and screaming, that's sort of like one of the, the gateways, or it's a symptom usually of a, a broader um, instances of abuse. And it's sort of, it's like a gateway to making athletes um, kind of, ex- um, how do I say, to kind of break down athletes' defenses so that they um, um, sort of tolerate more abuse. Um And, you know, one thing that I kind of wanted to clarify, because my next question was going to be sort of be about why is it that the own, I mean, you pointed out sort of the role of everybody and and acknowledging abuse and recognizing and rooting it out and how important that is and how that's why like parents need to be involved. That's why people like Rick Westhead or, you know, who are doing amazing work um, need to be doing that work. And so it seems that um, what I'm understanding is that due to the governmental refusal to create, to sort of mandate and create enforceable um, codes of conduct and sort of enforceable things to do when abuse is, 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 is noted and reported, that as a result, that makes this whole process more diffuse, that really puts the burden on like individual athletes, on individual parents, on individual journalists to kind of work really, really hard to prove that abuse existed rather than kind of creating an environment that's really centered on athletes' rights and protections, right? That really the onus is on the athletes. Right. Is Am I understanding that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would, I think collectively in Canada, at least we acknowledge that sport is the only remaining youth serving domain that is still self-regulating and completely autonomous with regard to the safety of children, which leaves young people really vulnerable to experiences of harassment and abuse. You know, I think, I think Nathan had earlier, he had asked um, what parents need to know. And, and I think parents need to really understand that once their child goes beyond the very low investment dabbling recreational level in a particular sport that parents are signing up to navigate a very old arguably archaic system led by individuals who may have personal reputational or financial interests in influencing their actions rather than solely the athlete's best interest and it's possible that their child's chosen sport is also steeped in traditional sport culture and influenced by things like hegemonic masculinity, misogyny, the gender binary classifications, and frankly, power imbalances at every turn. 
you know, conversely, there are great experiences out there. Absolutely. And I don't want to suggest for a second that children shouldn't participate in sport because of parents' fear. Um, It's entirely also possible that parents may find they've entered into a world of positive esteem building, developmentally appropriate opportunities for their child that will add immeasurable joy and lifelong friendships to their kids' lives. So that's the promise that sport makes us. And that's the promise that, you know, I'm really passionate about helping sport live up to. I I truly think we can do it. I'm shocked that it's taken us this long. Um, uh, You know, in the U.S., maybe I'm wrong as a Canadian, but our view is that there's so much money at stake and sponsorship and all that, that people's perspectives are skewed by those opportunities to make a lot of money, but we don't have that in Canada, but we still have the same problems. We still have, you know, the same um, uh, athletes speaking out with similar experiences, yet money is not the driver. So what is it? That's what I can't figure out. What is it that's, that's maintaining these cultures and sports structures that clearly are not working for the majority of athletes? I mean, I think you bring up a really excellent point that that sort of, you know, taking money out of the equation does not eliminate all of these issues. Um, and, you know, I, I want to get back to this uh, point that you made in response to one of um, Nathan's earlier points, a kind of sort of we assume that it's sort of this simplistic idea that, you know, we need to win more medals and that that is what drives everything. But what you were explaining earlier and that you had talked to me a little bit about uh prior to this conversation is that medals absolutely play a part, but that there's also this issue of sort of conforming and belonging to this culture. And that it really is the culture of which medals are a part. And in the U S of which money is certainly a part of that. Right. But it's also this culture, this really gross, um, disgusting culture that, you know, really encourage and, and, and really kind of forces coaches to abide by certain Uh, norms and parameters to the extent that, you know, there's the the coaches who are genuinely trying to be kind and supportive that because they don't fit in within these cultural norms, that they are made to feel ostracized and and all of these other things when really they should be celebrated. Um, So, so, right. So is it, is it your, you know, do you agree that it is kind of, that it is very much about kind of this culture and that that's what ends up really, um, getting a lot of people to participate in it? Yes, I think that sport and all of us involved in sport are trapped in the cycle of abuse. Cycle of abuse doesn't just happen in families. I have seen adults who suffered maltreatment as a child go on to become coaches who attempt, as I said, to be radically more positive than what they grew up with. But the pressure of the community that they're in um, directs their directs their coaching behavior in a way that they had not intended it to go. You know, the coaches often devote their entire lives to their profession. So other coaches become their primary social connections and their professional development is shaped by their workplace, whether it's healthy or not. I really don't believe that people are evil, but sometimes evil is normalized within a group. And that becomes a cycle that is very, very difficult to break out of. So 
I, I just don't see it. And, and maybe it's because I wasn't ever myself driven by the pursuit of medals. But I don't see that it's about medals or winning. It's about conformity. It's about belonging, mm. inclusion, validity, acceptance for for both the coaches and the athletes. And and frankly, I guess everybody involved. Isn't that what we all want out of our connection with other human beings is, is to belong, is to be accepted, is to be seen and heard and to know that we matter as people. Um, I think that gets so convoluted when you're in in a culture that is entrenched in in tactics and influenced by some really unhealthy things like the pursuit to win or funding, et cetera. You know, it's all it's it's also about control and power and dominance. Um, and perhaps that's because many coaches who used to be athletes lacked agency when they were children because they were a part of this this cycle. This cycle, at least in gymnastics, is at least 50 years old, 50 years in the making. Um, yeah. And I, I just wanted to add to that, that um, sport administrators too um, are a, a big part of maintaining the system as it is. Um, you know, I, uh, I have experience with um, sport leaders who, who I've looked to, to say, what are you going to do about this situation? How are we going to change the trajectory that we're on right now, which is headed to a, a bad place? And, and their response is, well, you know, my hands are tied. Uh, we are not a policing agency. We are not going to be um, the the organization that can mandate behavior. We don't have that kind of jurisdiction. And so my question to them is always, well, if not you, and if not us, those of us in leadership positions on boards of directors, if not us, then who? Who is going to take the stand and who is going to uh, be the driving force behind change and improvement for everybody? Because I'm pretty sure that these coaches do not enjoy um, um, toxic workplaces. And I know that athletes do not want to dedicate themselves to a sport that isn't treating them in the way they deserve to be treated. So if not you, then who? Right. There needs to be some kind of guardrails, right? That are outside of the sport that, that, I mean, it's, it's funny because it's like, we're sort of talking in part about how children are treated and like, well, as a parent, one of the things you need to do in raising a child is to, to give them those boundaries of security, right? Mm -hmm. To that, that feeling that there is something that they come up against that actually keeps them safe. Um, and even if it's not necessarily what their sort of unbridled desire might be, that check on their limitless desire helps them form their personality and their sense of security in the world um, to know that they can trust. Uh, and it seems like our system, our sports system, just completely fails to provide that security for everyone involved. Um, and so there's a way in which I think what you're saying, Kim, which is not necessarily something that I'm always thinking about, um, is like the, the ways in which even the coaches 
can benefit from that, right? Even yes. if it's not their their inclination based on the experiences they've had, there is a kind of security that ultimately comes from those boundaries, those limits, that understanding of what is and is not acceptable. And then you can come to sort of follow the rules <laughs> and and focus in instead on nurturing the athletes, which is probably the reason why you got into coaching in the first place. Right, because doesn't right? that sound like a more enjoyable job than the other? <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Where you have to sort of invent, invent your own methodologies, and there's a seduction in that, right? Mm -hmm. That like, at the end of the day, you then know everything, and your power, and like you know, anyone is 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 susceptible to then fall into those traps when they're given too much power in any context. Um, we shouldn't be empowering anyone in that way, uh, and and this kind of comes then to a, a question we have, which is about. The way in which parents, I think, sometimes maybe are shocked when abuse cases arise. Um, and the very fact that they might be shocked, I think, probably suggests that there's a level of almost implicit trust, right, that parents have in coaches. This idea that, like, mm -hmm. you enroll your child in something, you're enrolling them with a figure of authority who's going to nurture your child. Just like when you send your child to school, you trust that the teacher for many, many, many hours of the day is looking after your child, right? And providing the kind of care that you aren't in a position to provide in those moments. And, and there's a way in which I think as a society, we are kind of taught to trust coaches in that way. Um, could you maybe talk to us a little bit about that issue of trust mm -hmm. and abuse? Yeah, sure. Um, and and I can only speak from the Canadian perspective and, and Nathan, maybe you as well, but uh you know, I think in general, people are inclined to trust. There's a truth default theory, um, which says that we make positive assumptions about those around us, which enables us to be in relationship with them and to frankly operate within all these human built systems. But with that, those positive assumptions and that implicit trust, we also have assumptions that safeguards have been built in to protect us. So, for instance, you know, when you give your money to the bank teller, you trust that he will put it into the correct account. Uh, but you, but there's also sort of this knowing and comfort that if he makes an error, there are tracking mechanisms that can fix that error. So I think parents walk into sports club with much of the same inclination to trust. We trust that background checks have been done on the coaches. We trust that regular safety checks are performed on the equipment that our kids are going to use. We trust that club owners will act on concerning information about how athletes are treated. So we extend professional trust to the club or the coaching staff. And we assume that youth organizations or youth serving organizations understand and uphold their duty to care. Uh, and, and then we drop our kids off, wave goodbye and, and carry on happily carry on until we start to hear otherwise from our children. Absolutely. And kind of one thing before I go to the next question that you said that I thought, I just wanted to go back to, um, you had sort of said that, um, people's response, you know, when, when the question, when the point is raised, sort of, um, 
sport organizations and the and the government need to be uh, more heavily involved in um, recognizing and investigating and rooting out abuse. That oftentimes the comment that you receive is, you know, well, we're not in the business of policing. Mm-hmm. And I just think that is such a ridiculous response because that's not what you are calling for, right? That the purpose of all of these efforts is not to police people. It's to protect athletes, right? So the idea of policing people assumes that, you know, people need to, are going to be policing the coaches, for example, or policing the administrators. And like, really the purpose is to protect athletes. And if that means, you know, keeping an eye on and investigating perpetrators and abusers, then that's what needs to be done. And I think it also goes to the bigger point is sort of, you know, the, the decentralization or the decentralized approach to sports means that it ends up being incumbent on athletes, on parents to uh, do the do the work of bringing the, these cases to light and pointing them out and pressuring people to investigate and to do something about it. Um, it isn't to say that, you know, government, more governmental involvement and enforcement of protection will automatically eliminate all forms of abuse because, as you said, um, modern sport is created to, um, you know, around these uh, patriarchal norms. It's about um, controlling athletes' bodies, right? And so part of investigating and protecting athletes is helping to remove that culture that people feel really bound to. Um, but I just think that's such a ridiculous response um, and, and obviously picks up on all kinds of rhetoric that's going on right now about sort of the role of policing and enforcing and all these things when it's really about protecting everybody and protecting everybody equally. Yes. And um, I just want to add to that, that when there's yeah. evidence that maltreatment is occurring and we know children are looking to the adults who deliver and govern the sport to act on their duty of care, we can't not. We absolutely can't ignore that. If we accept leadership positions that include a duty of care in the job description, then we are responsible for protecting and acting in the best interests of those who are most vulnerable. And it's not the people in power who need protecting. You know, just to add to that, I feel like sometimes people with power or authority get confused on who the victim is because they feel like they have so much to lose if the truth comes out or they're too transparent. For instance, coaches who face consequences for maltreatment of their athletes can fall into feeling victimized by thinking that the consequences, like being fired or suspended from their jobs, are unfair. But Actually, it's being accountable for your mistakes or for taking liberties that actually caused harm to someone else. That does not make you a victim. You know, having to pay a consequence or be accountable does not make you a victim. It's it's the outcome of behavior that caused harm to someone else. And protecting one's reputation or the, your income does not trump a child's right to a safe, non-abusive sport experience that, frankly, they're paying a professional to deliver. You know, true victims are experiencing threats to their dignity, their esteem, psychological and physical safety, and their right to grow up without being used and exploited for someone else's gain. It's basic human rights that we're talking about. Those, when those are threatened, uh, that's the person that's the victim, the person that's trying to protect themselves from their own actions are not the victims in this situation. 
it seems bizarre to me that there's that there's basically a higher standard of confidentiality in sport hearings than what we have in the legal system itself, right? Like, I mean, people are constantly being accused um, and charged with crimes that are reported in the media, and we hear about it. That doesn't mean that they're actually being prosecuted in the media, but I mean, like, there is there is access at least to some kind of information about what is going on, and that can have really meaningful consequences because. It allows people who are outside that process to at least have some idea that there are question marks, right? Yes. Um, and if that's about a coach, for instance, I think it's only fair that uh, an, a parent and an athlete would have some idea that there are questions being raised about a coach's potentially abusive behavior. Especially, I mean, again, you're, you're talking about the Canadian context. Um, in the USAG context that, you know, is covered in Athlete A and all sorts of other um, reporting, it's very clear, like, Reports were made and made and made mm -hmm. and made, right? But they were never revealed um, to anyone beyond, you know, the walls of USA Gymnastics. And so parents presumably were just like, enrolling them, their children in the precise environments that were causing the harm. Um, and they weren't in a position to understand that they were doing that. So the confidentiality piece can have really harmful consequences, it would seem, in, you know, depriving athletes and parents of the opportunity to make some kind of choices for themselves about the safety of um, the young people involved in these in these situations. Why is this happening? Why do we have this kind of confidentiality standard in these sports organizations? What is going on? <laughs> it's again, it's the archaic system that we're dealing with. Um, it's the fact that, you know, 50 years ago, when people were struggling to make ends meet, that as a society, we chose that honoring a person's ability to make an income at the thing they wanted to make an income at trumped um, human, you know, the need for children to be safe or the need to conduct oneself in a moral and ethical manner. It's everywhere, right? Like you see it in Hollywood, you see it in our policing systems, etc. So it's archaic and it needs to be it needs to be transformed um you know i i studied word for word the 2019 ropes and gray report that was commissioned um i think for maybe even by us usag and usag was very criticized for being preoccupied with confidentiality within the gymnast gymnastics community um they they kept the information and knowledge of what was going on to confine to a really small group, thereby compromising um, USAG's ability to monitor um, like the behavior of coaches who had been accused. So if they were supposed to not have contact with, with athletes, you know, there was so few people that knew that that was even a thing um, that, that, it was very difficult for anyone to hold that coach accountable for not having contact um, by limiting the knowledge of concerns to only a few board members. Uh, they precluded oversight by the full board. I still see that happening. Um, only certain people on the boards of these sport organizations know about specific complaints. It's kept very isolated, which means you're not even getting the the full intellectual capital of a board weighing in on how 
the group should proceed. The organization should proceed. Um, I still see um, sport organizations and the national sport organizations failing to disclose serious, credible allegations to other youth serving organizations so that parents and athletes can make informed decisions about where they are training. If a parent doesn't know that a coach has been suspended and continues to take their child to that soccer club, gym club, what have you, um, they are unwittingly taking their child to a, a place where a coach isn't supposed to be having contact with the child, but nobody is holding that coach accountable because the the club is so far removed from the national sport organization. and. And frankly, there is a culture of enabling throughout these organizations. Um, it's it's head coaches or sport club CEOs that are turning a blind eye to the behavior of their staff in order to maintain um, their reputations or because they believe that coaches are so scarce that if they fire one coach, they'll never get a replacement and therefore they won't be able to take in as many registrations and co- have as many kids in the groups and they will struggle financially. I don't believe that to be truth. I think that's uh, a narrative that keeps perpetuating um, and and then therefore enabling really poor behavior. but. I think there are sports administrators who believe that. Um, I think it's imperative that all of us adults internalize the notion of, of supra-parental. And that's something that's come up at the Supreme Court level in Canada. And what that means is that board members, staff, coaches, club administrators, all the adults must have the prudent and careful concern of a parent while simultaneously exercising the technical expertise that is demanded of a coach or experienced leader in the sports community. So we have to be um, so in tuned as sport leaders to a child and what a child needs to be healthy and happy in our sport environment that we are almost as concerned as their parents are. Yet we also have that technical piece that allows us to recognize um, when equipment is unsafe or allowing a child to perform a skill that they're not ready for would be unsafe. You know, it's, it's the double whammy, the emotional and the technical connection to all the children, all the dependents, all the vulnerable. It could be a vulnerable adult um, in our programs that we need to step up and make the right moral and ethical choices as to how the club will conduct itself. 